The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 24. We're going to continue this week what we began last week. Looking at the ascension of Christ. Last week, I felt like we were just sort of blasting through, uh, doing a, 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 a flyby at, at light speed over the ascension, and I wanted to come back to it again this week and, and, and fill in some of the details that we left out last week and sort of cast it in a little different way for you. Uh, this is a theme that uh, doesn't come back around for us anytime soon in our study of Luke's gospel. In fact, it's a theme, as I mentioned last week, that doesn't come up all that often in our preaching and teaching, so I want, while we're here, to, uh, to try and, and uh, do it justice. I want you to listen to John chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. Just keep your place in Acts 1 and at the end of Luke, where we have the account of the ascension. I'm not going to reread that again this morning. We'll refer to it as we move our way through the, through the message today. But I want to read to you John 17, 3 through 5. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, if you haven't studied much of John's gospel. It's his high priestly prayer. It's a prayer that he offers just before his arrest and just before his crucifixion and just before all of the, the last days of his life begin to unfold. This is what he says in at least a portion of this prayer. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. A few verses down in verse 24, the same prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. As we look at this, this prayer that Jesus offers just before the last days of his life begin to unfold, we get a glimpse into what is the primary thing that's on his mind. What is the primary thing that he's thinking about just before his arrest and just before his trials and just before his crucifixion and just before the resurrection what is the thing that's on the Savior's mind as he offers up this sort of final prayer before things really begin to unfold I suspect that you noticed as we read the text that what's on his mind is not his arrest what is on his mind is not even his trial it's not his crucifixion it's not even his resurrection What's on the Savior's mind is the ascension. His mind is focused with a laser sharpness on the ascension, on his return to heaven, on his return to the presence of his Father. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's talking about the ascension. He's talking about what happens when he returns to the Father and he's, and he's back in the glory that he was in before the incarnation. Verse 11 of the same prayer, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you. It's the son communing with his father. Remembering for a moment what it was like before he put on human flesh and came to us. And longing for with heightened anticipation and great joy what is coming on the other side of the cross and on the other side of the tomb his return to glory he's reflecting on the glory he had before the world was and he's longing to return home to that same glory I think in some ways it's maybe reminiscent or, or analogous to a, a soldier who's gone off to war, who's out in the battle and 
his mind drifts back to home and he's remembering home and he's longing for his return home. Christ is very well aware of what's about to unfold as he goes to the cross and as he goes to the tomb and as he comes out the other side. And for just a brief moment, he longs for home. He remembers home. I think now more than ever in my life, I have some little taste of this. I can remember very vividly many a lonely night in the desert of Bahrain, uh, sitting in my room thinking about home, thinking about the places that I love and the people that I love. I can remember with very clear mind the joy and the excitement of finally getting on an airplane that was leaving that country knowing that it was the beginning of a journey that was going to bring me ultimately home. Whatever I experience of those things, or I experience, or any human soldier experiences of those things, it only scratches the surface, I think, of what the Son of God must have been feeling and thinking in this moment as he anticipates the cross. But as he looks with excitement to going home, and that's what we see at the ascension. We see the soldier who came to, to defeat death and to defeat sin and to, to defeat Satan. We see the soldier who did all these things knowing that the battle is over and the victory is won. The disciples are trained and prepared and commissioned and he's returning home to the glory that he left when he came. That's what's happening on the Mount of Olives beginning of Acts and what Luke records at the end of his gospel. As I mentioned last week, the ascension is in some ways the rest of the story of the resurrection. It is the culmination of all of Christ's redemptive work. It is the final piece of that. And it is a critical piece of redemption history. And as we mentioned last week, it doesn't get a whole lot of attention in, in sermons and in writing and in songs and in books. Michael Horton wrote this. He said, we typically treat the ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection rather than as a new event in its own right. I think he's on to something. I was reminded just this week how, how misunderstood and rejected the, both the resurrection and the ascension are in the world around us, both by the, the lost world and by those who identify themselves with the church. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist who's still out and about speaking and writing said this he said presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die we decompose accounts of Jesus resurrection and ascension are all are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk he couldn't be further for the truth but it's what he sincerely believes that's less alarming to me than what the Reverend Raphael Warnock said just last week, a U.S. Senator from Georgia, also the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. He should be the excommunicated pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church now because last week he said this, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Now let that sink in for a minute. A pastor of a church that identifies with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, now a U.S. senator with a large bully pulpit, says to a, a listening world that the essence of the gospel is that by helping others we can save ourselves. He couldn't have said something more heretical. He couldn't have said something that was more antithetical to the truth. He couldn't have said something that was more opposite of what is in fact true. If the gospel says anything, it says we can't save ourselves and that the only hope is that by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, that's our only hope to be saved. And yet here, a public figure, a pastor nonetheless, says that the essence of Easter is that we can save ourselves by helping others. I don't think a more foolish thing has ever come out of any pastor's mouth ever. So the, the resurrection, 
the ascension. These things are, are not to be taken for granted. We live in a nation where people in general know the story, maybe. Maybe less now than when I was a kid. But they, the, even the ones who know the story largely don't understand the meaning. And so we give our attention again to this, this wonderful event that culminates all of the redemptive history, the ascension of Jesus. And I was sort of distilled the whole message this morning into one sentence for you. Now, I'm not going to quit after I give you the sentence, just in case you're thinking that. I'm going to give you the sentence just so you have it, and then we'll flesh it out. I didn't want to get too excited there, but here's the, the one sentence for our, for our theme today, and here it is. We must be on mission and on alert because the king who ascended is reigning, he's representing, and he's returning. That's the, that's the message that I want you to hear this morning. If you don't remember the rest of the things I say this morning, remember this sentence. We're to be people who are on alert, and we're to be people who are on mission because the ascended king is reigning, and he's representing, and he's returning. Let's take that first word, reigning. One of the things that the ascension marks is that it marks the, the return and the coronation of the king of kings and the lord of lords. It had to have been the homecoming for the ages, right? Colleges have homecomings. Churches have homecomings. Maybe in your family you have some sort of a, a family gathering where, where all of the family that's spread far and wide comes home and you celebrate and reconnect. But none of those things that we experienced could have even begun to touch the edge of what it must have been like in heaven at the ascension when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords returned home. When the King returned to his throne. The eternal Son of God who emptied himself and he took on flesh, who humbled himself and was born of a woman who voluntarily left that glory of heaven in order to redeem men. He returns to his rightful place of rule and authority, but he returns in victory now, having accomplished redemption. And he returns now in human flesh. He is, in fact, the first resurrected man to enter heaven. Can you imagine that celebration? The Bible tells us that the angels celebrate with joy at one sinner who's redeemed. Can you imagine the celebration of the victory that Christ has won when the king returned home? In Philippians chapter 2, listen to what Paul writes. He says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Christ returned at his ascension to, to, to the glory of heaven, when he returned to his throne, we're told that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That name is not the name Jesus, it's the name Lord, which means sovereign ruler. He is the Lord. He is the, the reigning king who is Lord over all of the universe. He's exalted over everything in the universe. He's exalted over every human ruler. He is the king of kings. A human king is that best king of some little puny human nation. His power is limited in scope and limited in its authority. But Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His power has no limit and his authority has no limited scope. And he tells us that one day every knee will bow, right? And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the king. He is the rightful king before whom everyone must bow. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says this, and he is the radiance of of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand there means the position of power, a position of highest honor, and it connotes the right to rule. 
The writer of Hebrews is saying that when Christ ascended, he sat down on the, on the right hand of majesty on high. He sat down on the throne. He is exalted above everything and everyone as the rightful ruler of all creation. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says the same thing. Beginning in verse 20, he says, speaking of salvation, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things in the church. He affirms, again, what the writer of Hebrews says, that Christ Jesus is the exalted ruler of all things for all time, and there is none who are superior to him, and there never will be. He is ruling the universe right this moment and upholding it by the word of his power, and there are none who can challenge his authority. There are none who can usurp his throne. Because of that, friends, you and I don't have to live in fear. The reigning king of kings is on his throne, and he's ruling the universe, and there is no threat to his authority. We don't have to live in fear of any human ruler or any human president or any congress or any congressman or any human king. We don't have to live in fear of such people because Christ is ruling on his throne. And human kings and human authorities have nothing but delegated power and delegated authority. Christ himself raises them, and he brings them down. And any who think they can challenge him will find the same thing that King Nebuchadnezzar found in the Old Testament, that they're no match for his authority. They try. I told you a few weeks ago in a message about a pastor in Alberta, Canada. Do you remember? Pastor James Coates, who was thrown in prison for conducting services on the Lord's Day with his church in violation of Canada's uh, COVID-19 regulations. Spent a little over a month in prison. He was released uh, just a couple of weeks ago. But that wasn't the end of, of petty human authorities trying to establish themselves against the Lord and his church. The same authorities came in this past week, 6 a.m. one day, with police and private security and a private fencing company to put two layers of metal fencing completely encircling the church in its parking lot so no one could get in to worship. Petty rulers try to assert themselves against the Lord and against his church, but they have no idea who they're fighting, and they have no idea how badly that turns out for any who tries to exalt himself against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ is on the throne. We don't fear human rulers. We don't fear human beings. We don't fear sickness and disease. We don't live in abject fear over the latest virus or the latest plague or the latest whatever because Christ has all authority over all things and he rules the universe by his power alone. Nothing happens apart from his reigning authority. We don't live in fear of global warming and climate change because Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We don't live in fear of the future, what ha might happen tomorrow or what might happen next week or what might happen next month or next year because Christ holds the future just like he holds the present. He's the reigning king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords has returned to his throne. Our redemption is accomplished. Satan, sin, death, defeated. His church is established and Christ is ruling today. Amen and hallelujah, right? Doesn't that do you good to know that Christ is ruling and reigning? that we don't have to live in fear, that we can live with hope, that we can live with confidence, that we can live our lives and honor Christ to the best of our ability, knowing that a future is secure and we don't have to be afraid today because Christ is reigning right now and no one can challenge his authority. The ascension tells us that Christ is now reigning on his throne once again. No ascension, no present reign of Christ. But as I told you in our one-sentence summary, not only is he reigning, he's representing. 
What do I mean by that? Well, he's representing us as our high priest. Another thing we understand about the ascension is that Christ in his return to glory is now reigning not only as the king of kings, but he's serving as our great high priest. We sang about that a few moments ago, didn't we? Our great high priest whose name is love, right? Whoever lives and pleads for me. We just sang that. You, you caught that when you sang it, right? Do pay attention to the words that we sing, don't we? That's good, I hope. The book of Hebrews repeatedly plays out this theme that Christ Jesus is exalted Jesus and he's the exalted Jesus as our great high priest. One example, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's talking about the ascension, of course. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest who represents us before the Father. He is a high priest who's unlike any other high priest. He's the only high priest who's ever passed through the heavens. What is it that Old Testament priests did? Well, they did primarily two things. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. The people would come and bring their animals to the temple. You recall this from the Old Testament, right? You would, you would, you would come with your family to the temple. You would bring your lamb or you would bring your doves or you would bring whatever the sacrifice was for the day. You would lay your hands on them and symbolically your sin is transferred to the animal and the priest would then take the sacrifice and slaughter the sacrifice, spilling its blood as a sign and a symbol and a reminder of the wages of sin being death. Priests offered sacrifices for the people and priests interceded on behalf of the people. They stood in the gap for God's people. They stood between the people and a mighty God and they prayed for God's mercy and for his grace to be upon his people. When we hear the writer of Hebrews say that, that Christ is now at this very moment not only reigning, but he's representing his people as our great high priest, that's what he's talking about. He's essentially the same sort of activity. Christ is a great high priest, but he's different from any other high priest because not only is he a priest who offers the sacrifice, but he is the priest who at the same time is the sacrifice. He offered himself as the sacrifice, we're told. In Hebrews Chapter 7, verse 27. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. When Jesus dies on the cross, it, our, 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 our sin is paid in full. All of the sins of all of those who would ever entrust their lives to Christ are paid in full. No further payment is required. And the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God right this moment signifies to us that his atonement and his sacrifice on the cross was accepted by the Father. He is our high priest who has offered our sacrifice on our behalf. He offered a sacrifice of himself once for all. But he's also the priest who intercedes for his people on their behalf. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Though his atonement is complete, his intercession is not. The application of that atonement continues as Christ intercedes on your behalf and mine right this moment. Right this moment, he's going before the Father on your behalf and on mine. The Bible tells us he's our advocate. A good modern parallel would be a defense attorney. Christ Jesus, right this moment in heaven, is your defense attorney, and he's my defense attorney, and he's interceding before the Father, ensuring that none of the charges leveled against us can stick. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. He applies it this way. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because Christ is interceding for us, no one can bring a charge against his elect. Isn't that assuring, reassuring to you this morning? 
Nobody can ever bring up your sin as an accusation against you that still has punishment in the future because Christ interceding on your behalf by his own self in the presence of the Father assures that. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, there as our priest and representative, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He presents our names before the Father. He continually pleads our cause. He obtains for us a never-ending supply of mercy and grace. He watches over our interests with an eye that never sleeps. He's ready morning, noon, and night to hear our confessions, to grant us absolution, to strengthen us for duty, to comfort us in trial, to guide us in perplexity, to hold us up in temptation, and to preserve us safe on our journey heavenward until we reach home. That's what our great high priest is doing for us right this moment. You and I can live, we can live our lives here in freedom and in confidence, knowing that our salvation is secured because the sacrifice has been paid once and for all, and we have a great high priest who is right now daily ensuring that our salvation is applied to us in every way and that no charge can ever stick to us. Isn't that good to know? To know that you have a reigning Christ who's interceding for you? He's not just reigning, and he's not just representing you as your great high priest but he's also returning. He's also returning. We saw this in the, in the narrative of the, res, I mean, of the uh, ascension. The angels there in Acts said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. The reigning and representing Christ is also a Christ who's going to be returning. I don't know, at least among believers, if there's anything, any, any event in human history that's more anticipated than the return of Christ. There's an awful lot that we don't know about the return of Christ, but there are some things that we do know. And I'm no expert on eschatology. Now, maybe some of you are. I have some thoughts and I have some opinions and, and, and when I look at the text of Scripture, I still find that there's an awful lot of things that I don't know about what it's going to look like when Christ comes back. There are some things I know that I don't know. One of the things that I know that I don't know is the time of his return. And I know that I don't know that and I know that you don't know that and I know that nobody knows that. You say, how do you know all that? I know all that because Jesus said it in Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows about the day and the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What I don't know about the return of Christ is I don't know when he's coming, nor does anybody else. Jesus told his own disciples in Acts 1, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. I don't know when he's going to return, but I know it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be a surprise. Just like in the days of Noah, the flood was a surprise when it hadn't rained in a long time. When Christ does return, it's going to shock the world. I don't know when he's going to return. I don't know all the details about how all that's going to play out timing-wise. I don't know all the details about how it's going to play out in relationship to the millennium and to the tribulation. I have thoughts and I have feelings. I can piece together what the scriptures tell us into a picture that makes sense to me. But the one thing I know for sure is that he's coming back and that I don't know when it's going to be. 
But here are some things that I do know. I know that the world's coming to an end. The Bible makes this clear, that the world in which you and I live is coming to an end. This world is not going to last. It's not going to last. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes in verse 31, for the world in its present form is passing away. It's passing away. Paul makes very clear that the world in which we live is passing away. It won't be here forever. It is, in a sense, slowly winding down to its final conclusion. In the book of Revelation, John says essentially the same thing in verse 1 of chapter 21. He says, Then I saw heaven and uh, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, that's the earth that you're on right now, it passed away. There's a time coming when this earth will be no more. The world in which you and I live is not forever. And what I know about that is that as things get closer to the time when Christ is going to return, the Bible tells us things are going to get worse here, not better. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's what's going to happen as things get closer to Christ's return. I don't know what that description sounds like to you, but that to me sounds like things are getting worse. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that there's going to be a rise in warfare as we get closer to the end, that there's going to be a rise in famines and earthquakes and a heightened persecution of believers. There's going to be intense spiritual defection, people running away from the faith. There's going to be a rise in false prophets. There's going to be an increase in wickedness as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ. This world is winding down, and it's coming un hitched at the seams it's coming to a conclusion and it's going to be destroyed it's going to be destroyed not because we're going to ruin it with your carbon emissions or not because we're going to evolve into some sort of disuse not because we're going to somehow by our human hands incite global warning warming no, this world is going to come to a conclusion and be destroyed because God's going to destroy it. And he's going to replace it. The world is coming to an end. I know that, and I know Jesus Christ is coming back. The, the angels told the disciples that right there at the, at, the, at the resurrection. I mean, excuse me, at the ascension, right? This same Jesus is going to do what? He's going to return just like you saw him go. You saw him go on the clouds in power. He's coming back in the, with the clouds in power. Jesus told his disciples the same thing in Matthew 24, verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. In Matthew 24, Jesus uses this phrase, uh, coming of the Son of Man, five times. And again, in chapter 25, he uses the same phrase. He's talking about it with some level of regularity. The idea that he is coming back, that he is going to return. In fact, Jim and I did a funeral service this week for one of our elderly members who went to be with the Lord. And just about every funeral service we do, we somehow get to John 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, going to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you what does he say next I will come back I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me where I am all the biblical writers write about this James writes about it in James 5 1 Peter chapter 1 1 John chapter 2 the gospels are replete with it Paul talks about the return of Christ quite often and of course the book of Revelation from front to back takes us to the end of time and the return of Christ. So Christ is coming back. This world is passing away. And we know that his return is going to be visible and it's going to be bodily. 
That's what the angel said, right? He's going to return the way he came. He, excuse me, the way he left is the way he's going to come back, visibly and bodily. They saw him go. We're going to see him come back. He left bodily, not as a ghost, not as an apparition, not as Casper the friendly ghost. He left in a glorified body. And that's how he's going to come back, visibly and bodily. You can have a conversation with the Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on your door the next time they come around about this issue because Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Christ has already returned and began his reign over the earth, that he returned on October the 1st, 1914. Now, I'm looking at the crowd, and I'm suspicious that none around in this room were alive on October 1, 1914. Am I right about that? I think I'm right about that. But I can assure you, if Christ had returned visibly and bodily in 1914, it would have made big news. But of course it didn't because he didn't return visibly and bodily. They argue that his return was not a visible return. They claim that Jesus has not had a visible body since his ascension. They teach that it wasn't even a literal return, that his presence is, is sort of a, uh, a presence that's in the nature of an invisible influence in the world. That Christ has already come back, but he's come back invisibly with some sort of invisible influence. That is not what the Bible teaches. You want to get some, some nonsense like that, you've got to get it outside the Bible. You've got to write your own book and write that stuff in. The angel said he'll come back the way he left, visibly and bodily. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John writes, Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Christ is coming back. The world is passing away. He's going to come back in a way that's visible, and, and he's going to be in body like he left. It's going to be unmistakable. But you need to understand why he's coming back. He's coming back to judge and to reward. Two purposes for Christ's return. Deliverance and reward for his people, judgment and punishment for the unrighteous. When Christ comes back, it's going to be a glorious day for all those who've placed their trust in him, who've, who've repented of their sin and by faith entrusted their lives and their eternal souls to him as Lord and Savior, who have bowed before him as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is going to be a glorious day when the king returns. I kind of hope I'm around when it happens, to be honest with you. It's going to be a glorious day. But for those who rejected him, it's going to be a day of fear and dread unlike anything the world has ever known. Because when he returns, it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late for those who have rejected him. He comes not bearing the gospel, he comes bearing a sword of judgment. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul, excuse me, Luke writes, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God has set a day when he will judge the world. And he'll do that by Christ on his return. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name 
was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the eternal destiny of all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reigning King of Kings who's interceding for his people today is one day going to return and execute judgment on the world. But he's going to reward his people. In Revelation eleven eighteen, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great. He comes to reward his people. The Christ who ascended is the Christ who's going to descend. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you long for that day. You look for that day. It's a day that we don't fear. It's a day that we look for with excitement and anticipation because he comes to make all that's wrong in this world right once and for all and to reward his people. And he brings good rewards. Good rewards. How do we respond to such a thing? How do we respond to the reality that we have an ascended Savior who's reigning and representing us and returning? There's two things. You saw it in the sentence, right, that you memorized at the beginning. What do we do about these things? Do we stand at the sky and stare at it? No. We get on mission. We get on mission, and we stay alert. Just before his ascension, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. If you know this, you can say it with me. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples is go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. If you think about it this way, if you remember when Jesus called his disciples, do you remember in the early parts of the Gospels when he recalls his disciples? You may remember there was a day when he's walking along the seashore and he sees Peter some of the other disciples fishing. And he calls out to them, and he says, come follow me, I will make you, do you know what he says? Fishers of men. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're good at fishing for fish, I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. And here it is, ascension, just before he leaves, the last thing he says to him is, get out there and go fishing. It's, it's the, it encompasses the whole of his training of his disciples, right? At the very beginning, he says, I'm calling you to me in order to train you to go and be a fisher of men. And right before he leaves, he says, guys, now the training is over. Get after it. Go fish. Get your line in the water. Take the gospel to all nations, to every tribe, to every nation, to anyone who will listen. Go make disciples. Go share the good news. Go tell men how they can be saved. Go tell men that their sin doesn't condemn them forever, that there's a way to be redeemed. You know, it's not complicated. It is not complicated to take the gospel of Jesus and tell it to somebody who doesn't know it. It is not complicated. It doesn't require a degree in theology. It doesn't require extensive training. All it requires is being saved yourself. If you understand the gospel well enough to be saved, you understand it well enough to tell somebody else how to be saved. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, it's a certain fact that, that deep reasoning and elaborate arguments are not the weapons by which God is generally pleased to convert souls. Simple, plain statements boldly and solemnly made and made in such a manner that they are evidently felt and believed by him who makes them seem to have the most effect on hearts and consciousness. I 
give you a challenge in pastoral love. Can you, let me ask you just a general question. Can you right now tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ how to be saved in five minutes or less in a way that's clear and simple? Can you do that? If you're here this morning as a Christian and you cannot do that, I'm challenging you in pastoral love. You need to fix that fast. There's no excuse for a Christian not being able to tell somebody else how to be a Christian. It is fundamental to who we are, and it's certainly fundamental to what we're called to do and to be in the world. We live in a free and prosperous nation. Most of us have Bibles uh, flowing out of our homes and off of our bookshelves and on our nightstands and everywhere else. We have open access to pastors and teachers. You have thousands of examples on the Internet of how to do it. If you and I don't know how to tell somebody how to be a Christian, it's because we don't care enough to want to. And that's just plain and simple. Listen, as your lead pastor, I don't expect you to have all the answers for the end times. Lord knows I sure don't. I don't expect you to be able to settle once and for all how God's sovereignty and human will interact. <laughs> Lord knows I can't. I don't expect you to be able to define a long list of theological words. I do expect you to know how to tell somebody how to become a Christian, how to meet Jesus and be saved. Carl F.H. Henry said this. He said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. It's only good news if it gets there in time. And you and I are the ones who are tasked with taking it. When Christ returns, it's too late. It's too late for that family member of yours. It's too late for that neighbor of yours. It's too late for that coworker of yours. It's too late for that one that you keep seeing and you keep meaning to tell them about Jesus, but you haven't. When Christ returns, the gospel won't be good news for them. It'll be bad news because it'll only declare their condemnation forever. Today, it's good news because Christ hasn't returned. There's still time. We're to be people who are on mission taking the gospel. And we're to be people who are on alert. In Matthew 24, we read a little piece of that earlier when Jesus talks about the days of Noah and how suddenly his return is going to come. And he says at the end of that, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Stay awake, be ready. That translated stay awake could be translated keep watch. If you have a New American Standard, it probably says to keep watch. The idea is that as believers, how do we respond to a reigning Christ who's coming back? Where we get on mission with him and we keep watch over our own lives. We live a sanctified life and a clear conscience, understanding that Christ can come at any point and living in such a way that we don't have to be ashamed at his return. Be alert and be on mission. That's what we must do. We must be on the alert and we must be on mission because the great king who ascended, he's reigning right now. He's representing you as your great high priest and one day he's coming back. Praise God for Jesus, <laughs> right? Praise God for Jesus. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I hope you're ready. I hope you're on alert. I hope your life even now is marked by being on mission. That you're a fisher of men and a fisher of women. And you're taking the gospel to people while it's still good news. If you're not, right now would be a good time to get that right with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at you. We are blown away by your majesty. The more we look to you, the more amazed we are at who you are and what you've done and what you even continue to do for us right this moment. As we think about all that is meant by your ascension, we, we just marvel. Our sanctified imagination can't even begin to understand what it must have been like on the day of your ascension when you returned to your throne the celebration that must have occurred. 
we're blown away by the fact that he would ever leave that place for one such as us to begin with. But it does our hearts good to know that right this moment you're reigning over all things. That there's not one thing in the entire universe and all creation that is outside of your sovereign rule. Even the evil around us, even the bad things that happen are all a part of your sovereign plan that's ultimately for the good of your people and for your glory. Even all the people who do evil things and harm people, who seem to get away with it, well, one day you're going to be the returning king who's going to make all those things right. We thank you that you're our great high priest who offered your own self as our sacrifice once for all, paying full price for our sin, making full atonement, and that even right now, you're interceding for us, applying that atonement daily. You're our defense attorney. No charge of the enemy, no accusation from the accuser can stick because you stand as our advocate. And we long with anxious anticipation at your great return. And the skies will part. And the glory clouds will arrive. And you, the one who left, will come back. Oh, we long for that day, Lord Jesus. We long for it. We long for this world to be made right. We long for the rewards that you bring to your faithful. We, we long for the vindication of your church in a lost and dark and dying world. We long to see you, the one we've worshipped from afar, face to face. Until then, Lord, we pray that you'd make us people who are on mission and that you would make us alert daily, living in the reality that you could come at any time. Lord, for the ones who, who come under conviction this morning from your word, because they know right this moment they're not on mission. Maybe some that don't even know how to tell somebody else how to be a Christian. I pray that even in these quiet moments of reflection and decision that you would, by your spirit, move them to commit to change and that you'd help them to make that change. Mobilize us into the world, Lord, for your glory and for your honor, we pray it. Lord Jesus, in your glorious name, amen.